Blog Talk Radio. Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I'm here with my good friend, Jimmy Reed. He's the owner of Rock Solid Tile. He is the leader in glass tile for outdoor application and indoor application. Uh, Let me know when I'm blowing this, Jimmy. No, you're pretty much on target there. Uh, Really, we specialize in glass tile swimming pools, so that would be the installation of glass mosaic tile in uh, swimming pools and spas. Excellent. But thanks for the uh, effort. Okay, well, you know, uh, (laughs) it's it's not my world, brah. But anyway, you're doing fine. (laughs) What we are going to do is we're going to talk about something that I'm fairly comfortable with, and the reason we met is, you know, to improve your running ability. And we hope to, within the next hour, shed some light on how to prepare for a marathon or running events in common. And what I hope to to do here is have my friend Jimmy, you know, prompt me with some questions. And, you know, being a lay person, lay runner that he is, um, he represents the masses. He gets a chance to step up and take charge and and, uh, pose the questions that a lot of people are hoping to have answers for. So, Jimmy, let's begin. What do you say? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I listen to the show, and I always get a kick of, out, of your, um, out of your take on things, and I also really appreciate where you're coming from and what you're doing. Um, that being said, I have some questions, Richard. Do you okay. mind? No, I would love you to do it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, as you know, I've been running, like, forever, um, but probably most of my running life has been uh, done incorrectly. So you've really helped me in the last uh, several years, probably uh, five or six years or so, in changing my form, teaching me what form is, and getting me um, into consistent running um, without too much pain. So um, I've done a bunch of races over the years, but nothing big. uh, And I'm looking to do at least half marathons and possibly a marathon one day. So what I need from you and what I always need from you is guidance and help and um, preparation in, uh, in getting there. Okay, cool. So full disclosure, we hope to run the uh, half marathon at least in Havana, Cuba next year, correct? Yeah, we have. I think we have plenty of time to prepare for that. Is that yeah, right? we, we certainly do. Or, or is a year not enough time for someone like me? Well, somebody like me might need more than that, but, you know, the clock's ticking on both ends for me, right? So I'm getting too old and I'm, you know, so whatever. That's another conversation. But, all right, so let's, let's talk about um, the broad stroke, the things that we need to do in order to become a better runner. Let's not even talk about the destination in respect to the event. Okay. Let's just talk about... Um, you know, the the broad stroke, the things that you need to think about. And I've developed a, a few items on a list here. And uh, by all means, feel free to jump in and slow me down if I get a little out of control. I have a tendency to do that. But anyway, the first thing that I think people should concern themselves with is the time of day that they hope to train. And that sounds like a silly thing to think about, but you need to have consistency in your training. The most critical aspect of training in common is being able to have a time of day that you can depend on where you're going to go out and you're going to throw down. You're going to get your run on. As opposed to just say, well, you know, I'm going to run today when I get time and I get done with work or, you know, I finished uh, the dishes or, you know, after I feed the baby. You know, you've got a time of day that you set aside where 
the whole intent for that timeline, and everybody around you knows that that's your time to run. And having cleared the schedule, it really does make a big difference. And because I believe, oh yeah, so I believe consistency is a key to, you know, having success with your run. Uh, I agree with that. Um, it is really difficult sometimes, especially if people have a life. Uh, I, I Lately, I've been not um, running on a regular schedule, meaning uh, practicing every day at the same time. Um, it's kind of haphazard, and I'm really paying the price for that. I tend to lately be running more later in the day, and uh, w- with everything else going on, sometimes I'm missing a lot more days than I'm comfortable with. Um, Funny story, I normally I still feel like my normal time is early, early in the morning. Um, but I like to be on the road running, meaning out in, we live in rural Calabasas, California, so there's a lot of mountain, uh, mountain roads and they're secluded and so forth. So I like to run out there early in the morning. Um, but funny thing is, I think I've talked to you about this before. My <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. i got to tell a story. All right, go sure. ahead. So go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> my wife and I like to watch the TV show Walking Dead. I mean, great stories, really cool characters, and just the most awesome special effects, and, and the way they kill these zombies is great. <laughs> but um, so I'm daily, I mean, six days a week out at 5, I get up at 5, and I'm on the road by 5.30, and most of the year it's dark. So uh, last year, I'm out there stretching out, in the, you know, almost on the street, pitch dark out, and I hear a noise. And I'm like, you know what? There's zombies out here. I'm going back in the house. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I've probably run a dozen times in the morning since then. Everything else has been in the day. So <laughs> and I'm, like I said, I'm really paying for it. But, uh, yeah, a real schedule and a, a fixed time to run <laughs> really will help. Right. Okay, so if you have a zombie phobia... That's something yeah. to consider. You have you have that to get in the way. Got to be running during daylight. Well, zombies aren't like uh, Dracula. They 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 they. You think around. I could get away from a from a damn zombie? Yeah. Well, I couldn't, but but I <laughs> but I think I can I can outfight them. You know, so I stand my ground. Okay. So uh, <laughs> having said all that, um, the. Uh, Oh gosh, I got so lost in the zombie thing here. Well, listen, schedule schedule is super important. Um, yeah. When I do run and and consistently run in the morning, like still, I I meet you at six in the morning at the track, mm-hmm. and we have our group of people that we um, do our training with. Those days, the the Tuesdays that we meet, and the other days that I do make it out without fear in the, into the pitch dark of the morning, um, those are my best days. I mean, I feel so good during the day. I feel I get a great workout in in the morning, and uh, it really helps the whole rest of the day. Right. As opposed to like waiting for the for the workout later and always finding an excuse somehow, either purposely or not. There's always an excuse not to run later. Yeah, no question. So aside from uh, dedicating a specific time of the day, the thing that I think is critical and most people don't think of is that if you're a novice runner, and you know, a novice runner in my mind is someone that has not run like three miles consistently, five miles consistently, something like that, or actually participated in an event where they were, you know, trying to, you know, race the clock for more than a mile or so. But the, the thing that I think people miss is focusing on how to run. And you've kind of touched on that already. Because we just assume that running is just God's gift to us and we, you know, it's a fight or flight mechanism and we just, you know, we just inherently have the capacity to do it. And to some degree we do. But when you try to take bad running habits into a program and you progressively increase the volume of your training, things get really, really ugly. So right about the time you're hoping to shine, let's say you're five, six, seven weeks into a training program, you tend to get injured because you finally have put in enough work that it starts to become a problem and you you injure yourself. So I think the other thing to consider, aside from the fact that you set aside the time, is before you just start tossing yourself down the road in hopes of covering three, four, five, ten, whatever miles, that you dedicate time and, you know, seek out guidance to learn to run with proper form. Would you agree with that, Jimmy? Yeah, I do. 
I do agree. I mean, the, the form, I remember one time a long time ago, you told me, we've got to slow you down. And I always remember that. I always think about that when I'm running, when I'm running, whether I'm with you or not. Um, but slowing down really gives me the opportunity to concentrate more on the way I'm doing things as opposed to how fast I can get there. Right. And, you know, you never hear anybody come back from a run say, man, my form was awesome today. You know, especially new runners. They don't think they, they'll tell you about how far they went or how fast mm -hmm. it was, but they never talk about their form because it's really not on their mind. They're not thinking about that. And I'm telling you, it's really you talk about zombies. When I see people running down the road with bad form, I think that possibly, just possibly, they are zombies because they, they just they <laughs> look a lot of zombie looking people <laughs> running on the road. Yeah, walking dead, running dead. We should we should do a show. Yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, it's it's like that. I mean, you you really need to to address the running issues because uh, you know the, the statistics are scary. I mean, when you look at the number of runners that exist in this country that are participating in marathons and half marathons and what have you, seventy percent of them are injured or wow. you know battling with injuries. That's a lot of people getting hurt. I mean, that's you know when you're talking about better than half of the participants are hurt. And the fact that the, they're being hurt uh, as a result of bad running skills. Well, I believe, I, and I'm actually that probably is a low number. I mean, I, like I said, I've been running for for you know a hundred years, only recently learning how to run uh, safer and injury free from you. Um, but I've run on, and I, I have run on and off because of injuries. And there's nobody. I never thought in you know all the other all the previous years. I never thought about form or technique or how to run better. Only how to run faster. Right. And, and uh, always got hurt. Always it, got hurt. It's becoming. I mean, it's it's not like new. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's not new. Everybody's been talking about it over the past. Oh, I don't know. Uh, six, seven years. It's become you know really paramount in the running communities. People talking about the way they run. You know, suggesting that. I'm not going to land on my heels anymore because everything I read says don't land on my heels. And did everybody get taught to run on your heels as a kid? You know what happens? I know I did. You know, you know what happens is that there's a really interesting transition in the way we move. Children, and I'm talking about five, six, seven years old, they generally run very well. They run, you know, off their midfoot, and just if you look at the way they hit the ground, everything about the way they move is almost perfect. As we evolve, we start to screw it up. And I think that the, the, uh, the branch in the road there is when we start getting into adult shoes. When you finally get to the place where someone thinks, well, he's going to run, so we better go ahead and buy him some running shoes. And then w what ends up happening is you get into these shoes that are designed to cause you to find your heel first, and it kind of restructures your approach. And, you know, I think that... Uh, and we've talked about it a lot over the years. Bowerman from Nike is is almost single-handedly responsible for teaching us how to land on our heels. But that that's a that's a story uh, for another another conversation. But at the end of the day, the point I'm trying to get across here is that it's critical that we address the way we move because it will pay huge dividends in the long run. In my book, incidentally, I really wanted to tear the thing down and start over and say, you know what, instead of really focusing on all these aspects of the periodization training and how much heart rate you're going to do, let's just kind of take the first month of our training and dedicate that first month to running with good form. And I think that that would be a huge, huge benefit. As a matter of fact, I would love, as a matter of fact, I, I was at a school up in Ojai recently where I worked with a cross-country team, and I almost convinced the coach that the first thing they should do with their runners in all of their sports is dedicate the first few weeks, month, whatever, to learning to run properly because the potential for injury is very great when they run poorly. And so point being, we need to really give consideration to the way we move before we start concerning ourselves with how much volume we're going to create or how much intensity we're going to take on. Mm -hmm. All right, then well, go ahead. I was going to say more uh, with more intensity and without the proper um, movement or way to move, there's 
greater risk of injury. That's absolutely right. And so we eventually get strong enough to hurt ourselves. And it's really interesting because it becomes a function of strength to weight ratio and bone density. You know, you got people that it doesn't make a difference what you do to them. They never get hurt because they're just very resilient. They're just very, very tough. And, and they could run poorly and get away with it. And then you got people that are very fragile, and almost anything they do, it's like the pee under the pillow type thing or a mattress. You throw them a, a little bit of a curveball, and they're down. They get hurt. And the, the masses, I think, live somewhere between those two points. For the most part, we're somewhere in the middle. And as it turns out that if you talk to most novice marathoners, they rarely get past about a 30-mile week in their training. And that's generally because there's this break point where if they put on any more mileage, intuitively they know that they're going to get hurt. So they don't. And, and or what they do is they brave it because everybody told them if they're going to have a successful race, they're going to have to put in more miles, and then they get hurt. And then they end up taking two, three weeks off because they're hurt, and then they miss a lot of precious training time. Starting over. Yeah. With that said, uh, the next thing that I have on this little quick list is now that you've put in this initial time preparing and learning to run properly, the thing that you want to do as you're starting to develop a program is you want to identify what your state of fitness is. Let's just say, for example, let's just kind of create somebody. Let's make Jimmy weigh 180 pounds and let's cause him to be 10 years older. It's coming, buddy. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> so, 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 so you know, you go, you look down one day and you go, oh man, this isn't working. I've got to tighten this up. I've got to lose some weight. I've got to get my health back because I've got a family to raise, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you decide you're going to, you're going to start running. And where do you begin? How many miles a week should you be running? Uh, how many days a week should you be running? And how many weeks would you prepare for an event? That's the consideration that needs to be addressed. Incidentally, in my book, I do that, I think, pretty well in where I have you fill out a questionnaire. It's basically saying, I haven't run and blah, 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 and I've been able to do this or that. And it's kind of a, a ranking system where based on the score you get at the end of this little questionnaire, it kind of categorizes you in respect to how many uh, hours of training you should take on in a given week. And so, in other words, it's a starting place where your training begins. And, you know, of course, there's also templates in the book that talk about okay, you're going to run a half marathon and you're a beginner, here's where you should begin, or an intermediate runner or so on. But the point is is that it's a, it's a critical thing to think about because if you kind of go hog wild and you just think, oh, you know what, I ran four miles yesterday, I'm going to run five miles today. And I ran five miles today, so I'm going to try to run eight miles on Saturday. You're really kind of attaching yourself to a hellbound train. Eventually what's going to happen is you're going to burn out and, or you're going to get hurt think a lot of people do that? I think a lot of people aren't sure what to do. And what ends up happening is they, they do what their buddy's doing. You know, the whole morale, especially the guys, incidentally. I hate to bag on guys, but, you know, we tend to throw down. My buddy says he's going to run 10 miles, so, you know, I'm not going to let him do that without me doing it, right? So, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? We're kind of stupid like yeah. that. But the point is that you really need to come to grips with the amount of volume that you should be taking on relative to your state of fitness. And incidentally, uh, this brings me very uh, nicely into not concerning yourself with mileage per week. And this is another thing people get really screwed up with. They think in terms of, I need to run 25 miles this week. Well, what's more important than how many miles you generate in the week is how much time it takes you to cover those miles. So I tell people to focus on time as opposed to mileage. For example, and you know this to be true, it's like if you go out and you know, you're running like a, let's just say it's a cruise pace for you, you're running an eight minute mile. And our theme for the day is we're going to run 10 miles. Well, you know, you're gonna get back considerably sooner than I am. So the question would be, who got the better workout, you or me? Well, for me, if I spent a half an hour longer staying aerobic than you did, well, I win. You know, I might not have got back first, but I got exposed to more treatment than you did. So at the end of the day, if my goal was to improve my aerobic functionality, because I was out there for longer, for my body, my circumstances, I ended up in a better place. 
which is kind of hard for people to swallow. But because uh, people are so concerned with speed and distance, or whether your buddy beats them or not, you know, or, I mean, or both. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's uh, competitive, right? Basically, it is. Well, of course. Now, by the way, that's probably why a lot of people don't run is because they're concerned they're going to look foolish. You know, I mean, the, the first day they go out and try it, and, and it's ugly, and they're going, "Oh man, I hope nobody saw me doing that." <laughs> Yeah, I sucked. I hope nobody saw. I'm not doing that again. Or you know, your girl. You know, I mean, let's let's take it off the guys for a second. You know, a couple of girls get together and say we're going to go out and run five miles, and you know, Susie's scratching her head, going, "Oh man, five miles. I don't know if I could do that, right?" And but she tries it anyway, and she falls short. She runs two miles and has to walk, and then she feels kind of dorky, and you know. So, but the point of the matter is, that's why they call it training. Training is about preparing you to become better at whatever your goal is. And if your goal is to run a half marathon or run a marathon, you've got to put in the appropriate amount of time training, not necessarily the appropriate amount of miles. The miles come. I've told people this a hundred times if I've told them once, is that mileage is the reward for exposing yourself to the appropriate amount of time training. And that's the key, is making sure you're doing the right things at the right time and putting in the right amount of time. So, for example, uh, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so you might have to rein me back, but I like to have Well, let me just, let me ask. Yeah. So, they, is, it's important, then, that people are patient. Is that right? Absolutely. That, that's where I have trouble sometimes. I'm like, uh, you know, I want to, I still, I want to do those miles. I want to get more, you know, one more mile or one or two more miles for, uh, this day, and I want to do it a little bit faster than I did the other day, but that I know from, you know, from hanging out with you and talking and going over this stuff that that is I'm just being impatient that actually could hurt in the end right and and the specifics of that we're going to address here in a moment but at the end of the day there are basically three things that we're trying to achieve while we're training and if anybody's listening to this and they're you know they're taking notes get out the bold magic marker for this okay because there are three things and really there's two there's two things okay Metabolic function, how your body accesses energy, is a very, very important consideration. Because there's only two sources of energy that we store, it's fat and it's sugar. Protein is not a usable energy source, not one that would be worth considering. So we have an infinite amount of fat to access for energy and very, very sparse amount of sugar to access for energy. And we can easily run out of energy inside of a two-hour window if the intensity of the work is too great, okay? So metabolic function, that's a consideration. That's the one thing. And the only other thing there is is mechanical aptitude. And I touched on that early on, which is how to improve the way you run, which in turn is a left-handed complement to your metabolism because it costs less to do things, causes you to be at a lower expense to do things if you're training with good form. So I said three things, and the reason I said that was because you're either aerobic or you're anaerobic, which is two metabolic functions opposing, and the third thing being mechanical aptitude or motor skill. So those are the three things. And so once you, are, you come to grips with that, once you realize that there's a, those are the three things that you need to hone in on while you're training, then it becomes a function of how much time that you expose yourself to these attributes, these elements. And everybody knows that, anybody that's been paying attention to this kind of thing knows that aerobic functionality means that your body's burning fat. And everybody wants to stay aerobic for as long as they can and at as great a pace as possible because you have an infinite supply of energy to draw from to do that. So point being, if you're going to run a marathon, if you go anaerobic within the first couple miles and you stay there, you're not going to make it. It's, you're going to run out of time and you're going to run out of energy and you're going to crash. And, and you know, the old comment about hitting the wall, that's what that's all about. So... We, uh, you know, again, I got a little off track there, but the point, I'm just getting get back on my list here. Once you establish how much time you're capable and willing to dedicate per week 
to improve your running ability, you want to dedicate a certain element of that time, a certain uh, portion of that time, to your aerobic conditioning. And because it's so critical, in the beginning of your training, it should be 80% of your total training time. Hmm. So if you were going to run 10 hours a week, if you decided I can run for 10 hours a week, regardless of what the pace is going to be, I can dedicate 10 hours a week, eight of those hours need to be aerobic, meaning that you're at a place where your heart rate's low enough where you're accessing fat stores for energy. Because aside from what's happening at the moment, you're also developing the body to become better at accessing fat stores for energy. And then eventually you're going to be able to put on more and more work, meaning more pace, while staying aerobic, which is what everybody's after. So that would be like running uh, running at a much slower pace in well, your well, let's, let's eight get, of the 10 hours of working out? Let, let's get a little bit more uh, critical. We've done a VO2 on you recently. And if my memory serves me, I think your threshold or what I considered to be a nice place for you to hang out to be aerobic was about 140 beats per minute. Okay, so that's Uh, okay. So that suggests that of those 10 hours, eight of those hours you'd want to dedicate to running that causes you to stay as close to 140 beats per minute as possible for the extent of the run. And so that may be, in the beginning, very, very slow in your mind. It might seem like, oh, this is ridiculous. What am I going to get out of this? But the truth of the matter is, is that you are giving yourself an aerobic treatment. I look at it like a spa treatment. You're bathing your body in oxygen. And the payback for that over time is that you are going to become more capable of staying aerobic when you start to put the hammer down a little bit. So let's equate it, okay? Let's say that 140 beats per minute for you today. Did you do your time trial? We did your time trial, right? Yes. And how long did it take you to cover a mile of staying at that heart rate? Oh, boy. I don't remember. Richard, okay, so let's that right in front of you. Yeah, I know. So let's just say, <laughs> let's just say that it was nine minutes. And I, I, I want to say that it was faster than that, but let's just, for the record today, just for the sake of this argument, let's say that it was a nine-minute mile. And so what we've defined early in your training, we A, first of all, we established your heart rate limits by doing a VO2 test on you. And we identified that a cool place for you to be to get this aerobic treatment we're after is about 140 beats per minute. So now that we are armed with that information, we had you do a time trial. And this is just a way to quantify progress over time. And this is a critical bit of information, incidentally. Because now we know that today, if you are working on your motor skills, well, let me, let me back up. Today, if you run 140 beats per minute for a mile, it's going to take you nine minutes. And so now we're going to set about doing our training. And we're going to dedicate 20%, which incidentally is a very critical component of this whole process, to your motor skills. So this is where you're working on your running form. And these are very, and you've done them with me, so you know what I'm talking about, these very spiky, high-intensity intervals where your focus is bringing yourself up to your peak velocity, meaning that you're moving through space as quickly as you can before you start to screw your form up. Uh So for some people, that may not be very fast. That might be like they were running, you know, their base runs, uh, you know, a nine-minute mile, ten-minute, whatever it is, and then as soon as they pull the trigger and they go to a, like, they try to go to a nine-minute pace and their legs start flailing, their arms go all over the place, and they start to blow it. And so the cost of that running pace exponentially goes way through the roof. So let's just say that your heart rate jumps to 160 beats per minute because you try to bump it up a, mi- a minute per mile faster. You know, that's what we're trying to correct. We want to make sure that we are really hunkering down on improving our motor skills. And that little 20% dedication to the process has huge implication on the global scheme of things. So, in, 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 and again, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I, I, we're here, so i gotta, I got to play it out. 
we dedicated 80% to base training, 20% to motor skill training. And we're going to do this for six weeks. And then we're going to follow up with a time trial again under the same circumstances. In other words, if you did it in the morning and there was no zombies around, <laughs> you ran another mile at 140 beats per minute, and lo and behold, you just dropped a minute from your finish time for that mile at the same cost of work. Well, that's good news. We're on the right track. That means that things are working. And so the reason this occurred is because two things were in play. Number one, because you're really focusing on improving your motor skills. Mechanically, you're improving the efficiency in the way you move, which is an economical advantage. And then because you're exposing your body to lots and lots of oxygen while you're training that 80 percentile, you're ventilating waste very efficiently. You're moving the carbon dioxide. You're moving the heat out of the muscles. And your body is already starting to adapt. You're getting more blood flow to the working muscles, and you've got more oxygen-carrying red blood cells in the muscles. And I'm not going to go into the whole uh, you know, physiology of that, but, but, the, but at the end of the day, this wonderful thing starts to take place where this aerobic conditioning in concert with these skill sets that you've been following are starting to pay huge dividends. And so that represents, essentially, for most people, about the first six weeks' worth of training, we'll call that phase one, 80-20. Okay. Now, um, I, at this point in the road, I want to share with you that I did a, show, <clears throat> did a show, show a few weeks ago with a good friend, Matt Fitzgerald, wrote a book called 80-20. And it is built around the concept of all the research that was done early in the day with uh, uh, Steven Seiler, he's a physiologist living in Norway now, where all through his research and you know, all the things that he figured out, he, de he determined that most of the endurance athletes in the world almost intuitively were following a principle of 80-20 and getting great, great result from it. But the, it's interesting because the conversation that was revolving around those ratios, the 80-20, were relative to intensity. So in other words, 80% low intensity, 20% high intensity. And that's what they spoke of. That's what Siler was speaking of. This is, what I do is not quite the same thing because the intensity can only be there if the skill sets are there. So in other words, you don't get to go into Pandora's box and reach into that high intensity unless you're carrying skills to the table with you. You with me? Yeah. Are you, are not you, just the time, huh? It's not just about how hard you're able to beat yourself up for those 20%. It has to do with how skillfully you're able to get up to those intensities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and I refer to that, by the way, is your mechanical threshold. This place where things start to go badly. And, you know, you and I are old enough to remember, like, the old muscle cars, Right. Uh -huh. And so, like you're, you know, you, here you are, 17 years old, and you're in this, uh, you're in this uh, uh, Chevelle uh, 396 SS Sport, whatever they call it, Chevelle. What, whatever. Yeah. Okay, and so you're going First like, shifter. yeah. <laughs> so you, you know, you're going like 80, 90, you know, because we did this right, 100 miles an hour, and all of a sudden the roof on the or the hood of the front of the car starts rattling. <laughs> you remember those days? And things start getting a little I out of... I remember the hood flying up. Yeah, yeah. So the point being is that things start going badly as you get up to speed because the car, the suspension... Yeah, things fall apart. Well, it's just not, it's not geared to, to tolerate those speeds. Well, your body functions kind of the same way. So um, the, the difference between the body and that car is that, you know, like you suggest, you get out of the car and you put the hood back down, <laughs> you're good. <laughs> But we break. You know, we tend to hurt ourselves when we push ourselves into those high intensities if we're not focusing on improving how smooth the ride's going to be when we get there. So my focus with this 20 percentile is really, really important that we dedicate it to moving as efficiently as possible. And then ultimately you'll start noticing with these high repeats that we do in these intervals that eventually your tolerance for speed improves as your efficiency and the way you move improves. And I, I've done this many, many times with clients on a tr high-speed treadmill, where initially, while I stood right next to them and stood over them and watched them move, their threshold was nine miles per hour before things went badly. 
And, and then we tried it again, and it went up to 10. And we tried it again, and it went up to 11. And we tried it again and got them up, eventually get them up to around 14 miles per hour before things go badly. Well, realize that if you can get up to these high rates of speed without uh, sacrificing form, then when you bear down, let's say we fall back down to like 10 miles per hour, which is about a six-minute pace, you're going to find that's pretty sustainable because all your cylinders are firing and everything's just moving along very nicely because your capacity, your threshold for speed has gone up. Am I getting with, too crazy with, or are you with me? With, no, I, I think I'm with you. You mean with the, with the form, it's easier to keep a, a consistent pace for the proper form. Exactly, exactly right. But you have to visit it. You have to visit these high rates of speed with good form in order to adapt to them. And, and I, again, I, I've been doing this research in my lab for years now with, with high-speed athletes where, you know, their goal is to run a 40 or a 60. And, you know, they're trying to get it done in, like, seconds, you know. And any, any tenth of a second they could shave off if it's important where we're dropping them onto a treadmill at upwards of 25, 26 miles per hour in a harness, and they gotta, they gotta, they got to throw down and be right on it because if their, right, form, right there. if their form isn't happening, they can't do it. They get tossed. And so what we're learning from this is that these high rates of speed that we expose them to, when we draw them back down, they're able to sustain speeds that before were just unthinkable. They couldn't possibly have done it before. And because their efficiency has gone so far up, it's improved so dramatically that they're able to do it. So this is the beautiful thing about this is that I've been watching. I've been sitting back in the peripheral here, and I've been watching guys talk about this 80-20, 80-20, 80-20. But I almost think that they're missing the most critical aspect of it is the, the skill that you deliver when you're trying to focus on that intensity. And it's almost, it almost becomes, matter of fact, you know, while I'm sitting here talking about it, had a conversation with an athlete I'm working with right now who's going to run a marathon on Sunday. And he's been doing this, he's been doing this better than anybody I've trained so far. Because I get the data, he sends me these, these data sheets and I'm looking at what he's doing. And he's progressively been able to get up to greater and greater speeds and sustain greater and greater speeds than ever before because he's been focusing on these motor skills. And he's not been doing, you know, like a lot of it. He's only been doing 20% of the total volume he's dedicated to it. So uh, point being is that, you know, if you and I were going to run six hours a week, we only going to do 20% of that time is going to be dedicated to skill sets. Well, he's running 11 or 12 hours a week. He's doing more of it, but percentage-wise, it's only 20%. And, huh. and it starts to really make a big, big difference. Wow, that was a lot of stuff. Yeah, are you done? <laughs> <laughs> you can get edit this out. Well, yeah, what's what's really what's really funny is is that um, you know we started to talk about heart rate, and you know that was number four on my list, and I've already gone into how to do it, and I haven't told you why to do it. Mm-hmm. But the the point is is that a lot of people. This is another thing that I experience a lot with uh, actually some really premium athletes, you know, where they give me this, well, you know, I used to, I used to train my heart rate, but I, you know, I don't do that so much anymore because I know my body. It's like, I want to get a stick and I just want to rack them, you know? Yeah. I mean, doesn't the body change? Oh yeah. Doesn't your training change? Doesn't everything you do affect the heart rate? Well, yeah. I mean, not only that, but how you feel. I mean, you could get up with a virus, you know, and not know it. And, uh-huh. you know, the first indication things are not going very well is your resting heart rate's too high. Or you could be overtrained, and then, you know, your heart rate indicates that things aren't going well. But aside from those real drastic concerns, the day-to-day cost associated with the work you're doing is going to be told to you through your heart rate. Because your heart rate is an indicator of how many calories you're spending. And uh, my friends at Training Peaks, incidentally, I'm going to give them credit for this, they developed this thing uh, they refer to as a, a trim score. And a trim score is where you multiply your heart rate, your average heart rate in a, in a given week, hour, whatever, workout, times... I think you outlined this in your book. I do. The time you spent yeah. training multiplied by your average heart rate. 
So in other words, let's say you did 10 hours worth of training at an average heart rate of 140 beats per minute. Uh, so what is that? That's uh, uh, 1,400 uh, points, right? Something like that? Am I right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, so so the score for the week is 1,400. So that's that's a measure of the intensity or a measure of the cost associated with your training for that week. So let's say that we come in next week and we don't do as many miles or we don't spend as much time, but the intensity is greater. So let's say instead of running 10 hours, we ran 9 hours, but we ran at a heart rate of 160 beats per minute. Well, even though we put in less volume, the intensity made up for the time we didn't spend, and our trim score is going to be higher. So what ends up happening is it gives you a way to gauge the amount of intensity you're putting into the work. And it helps to guard you from overtraining, you know, if you're paying attention to it. So all these data points are critical, and you can't just rely on pace. You can't rely on outcome. You can't say, wow, I ran an eight-minute mile, or I ran an eight-minute mile for, for 10 miles, you know, because that's just yield. This is, this is what you got back for what you put into it. It's like, it's like you know, if, you're, if your uh, daughter grabbed your credit card and she goes, wow, credit card, going to the store, <laughs> it just starts flailing in a store, you know, with no regard for whether there's any money to back it up or whether the credit limit's going to fall, fall short. Um, you got, By the way, that's happened. <laughs> yeah. So the point being is that you have to be in touch with the cost of work, and there's no better way to do that than through tracking your heart rate. So, being, like I said before, being consistent in that as well. Yeah. So, and then, but the education that you gain over time, you start to notice. Well, you know, I did. I holding 140 beats per minute in the beginning used to yield a nine-minute mile. Now I can do it at an eight-minute mile. And because we know what the cost of work is, let's say, for example, for you, and I don't recall, so I'm just going to make something up. At 140 beats per minute, based on your mass, your caloric expense for an hour would be 700 calories. Okay? So you're burning 700 calories to cover a nine-minute mile in the beginning. Well, through training and because your mechanical aptitude is improved because you're doing the skill sets we talked about, you're able to cover the distance in seven minutes. Well, at 140 beats per minute, uh, your hourly cost, oh, I just screwed myself up. But anyway, let's say, let's say if your heart rate was the same over the course of an hour, you cover more distance at the same expense. You with me? Did, did I yep. screw that all up? I, no, I think that's right. But uh, how do you, how do you gauge and calculate your heart rate throughout the hour? Let's say you're out there running. Do you use a, um, a digital uh, heart rate monitor? Just a, a wireless, I mean, a, yeah. a watch type thing? Yeah, you know what, Jimmy, I'll tell you what. I'm I'm going to reach out to my people, and I'm going to tell them that because you're doing such a fine job with me on this show that they should send you one of these watches. <laughs> because you need, you, need, you need a heart rate monitor aside from the, and, and incidentally, I'm going to share with them that you're, you're using an old Mio, by the way. You're putting your fingers on the, on the, on the mm -hmm. watch face That's what I'm using now. to palpitate it, to get, get your heart rate. Well, by the time you finally get your heart rate to happen, it's dumped by 20 beats. So mm -hmm. you, you're, you're, two things are going on. Number one, you're not getting continuous heart rate feed, so you don't know how many calories you expended for the workout. And, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be accurate after the fact. So, I mean, if you're trying to see, well, what is my heart rate right now? Am I dying? That would probably work. But you need continuous heart rate feed. And uh, so the Mio Alpha or actually the link too, but um, the alpha would be best for you because I know you don't like to carry a cell phone uh, while you're running. Um, and what happens is you can see your heart rate on the watch without having to concern yourself with you know, all that data collection. If, if I had my way, I would have you carry your phone so that you... Well, let me ask you about that. Yeah. So my, my, I consider myself a, a, a recreational runner. So I run... I run because I love to do it, right? I love how it makes me feel. So I run in the morning, like I was telling you, and in the afternoons, I have to. On the weekends, I can run, uh, take some more time to just go out and do some really killer long runs. But I do it, like, just for myself, and I'm not monitoring like you're recommending and, like, what's really important for this um, for uh, this preparation. So if I want to um, 
focus on that, maybe I should be considering doing a different, uh, a bit of a different um, um, way of keeping score of all me, my of my heart rate and so forth. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's just information. You know, you, it's more information. It's like if you're going into battle. You want to know as much about the enemy as possible, right? Yeah. You, you don't want to say, ah, no, that don't matter to me. Whether there's 50 or 100 guys behind that wall, I'm going to go in there and fight. <laughs> you got to know yeah, what's right. going on, right? So you, 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 uh, you knowing your heart rate while you're training, um, because uh, your perception is really, really deceiving. And this is really an important thing. To, I'm kind of glad we went this way because this is an important thing to consider. When you're when you're running for an hour. And you're like blazing the trails, and you know the, the stars are blinking, and you know the early birds are chirping, and you're all happy. Well, because it's only an hour, and because your intuitive pace is such, you're not going to exhaust your energy stores. So even though you have enough energy to do that work, the the uh, infusion of work is taking you to the dark side. It's it's helping you to become better at being anaerobic which detracts from your ability to be aerobic. So even though it feels good to you, if your goal was to go longer, you're actually being counterproductive so or counterintuitive. So you, you want to be informed. And then if you track the work over time, you're starting to get paid. You're going to start noticing that things start getting easier, you got faster, and everything starts getting a whole lot better. All right, so... But um, let's kind of, if we could, let's kind of get away from that for a minute because I have so many other things I want to talk about, and we're going to run out of time. All right. All right. So um, the point, the point being, the global point here was that you want to use heart rate as kind of an influence uh, or the guiding light, so to speak, in respect to how things are going with your training. And then uh, I'm going to turn table just a little bit and talk about something that that. Um, I talk about a lot, but generally not in the confine or in the con uh, context of, of this whole uh, training dynamic, which is shoe selection. And I think it's important that, you know, despite what the shoe industry is trying to do to us, which is to, uh, you know, kowtow to our desires. Oh, I want the pink one. You know, pink ones are pretty. Or, you know, or I want the real soft, cushy ones because cushy being soft, that must be better. Um, you, you, the first thing you need to concern yourself with is finding a shoe that's comfortable for you. And believe me, there are so, I mean, you know this, there, there's so many options out there in the world. Let's start with finding something that's comfortable. And the caveat, well, you know, wait, 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 wait. I, the caveat to comfort is that you want to make sure that you find a shoe that doesn't uh, interrupt normal foot function. So, that changes the game a little bit because if you find this real cushy shoe and you think, oh, this feels really, you know, really bitching, I, you know, it's like a big old Cadillac wrapped around my foot. Well, it's, if it's interrupting the natural function of the foot, it's not helping you, and eventually it'll be a problem. That's my belief. Go ahead. I, I think you're right, and what I was going to say is that People really need to know. I need to. I've just kind of recently, in the last few years, learned what comfortable really means. What that, what it, the definition is, because we're, as you said before, we're trained to uh, go to the the pretty ones and the ones that are more cushy and so forth. And really, uh, also the cushioning and the tightness of how snug they fit is also um, something that people think are actually really comfortable. But in the long run, in running, I don't think that is comfortable. Well, what ends up happening, and this is the this is an interesting uh, phase in the industry right now, is we went through this phase of the minimalist. You know, everybody was like in the you know the sandals, and in the uh, five fingers, and all these real real you know close to the ground shoes. And most of them, you know, they just went out and bought the shoes, and they figured the shoe was going to solve all the problems of their life and the way they move. Well, the way they ran didn't change. So they went into these very minimal shoes with no skill. And so what ends up happening is there was a, a whole slew of new injury, injuries that came about. And then so a lot of people took an about face, and then the, the, you know, the new guard was to find cushy, put a bunch of cushion underneath your shoe, and then that protects you from all the mistakes you're making. 
Well, at the end of the day, and you know, we I, the same thing. Yeah, I banged the drum early uh, in this conversation for improving your skill sets because what I believe is that when you learn to run with good skill, you're going to need less and less shoe underneath you. And actually, the less shoe you have beneath you, the more afferent feedback you're able to gain from the ground, and your 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 central nervous system gets a lesson. It, le- it learns, okay, I need to put load here because this is what the contour of the ground is, and you get this feedback, and you become you know what we refer to as natural runner, and and uh, you know and I'm being very careful to suggest to people that that does not mean being barefoot. And because, you know, in my mind, in this day and age, we're not really living in an environment that is going to be very uh, agreeable with being barefoot, you know, given that we've got broken glass, we've got nails, we've got concrete, we've got pavement, all these unnatural surfaces are a little unforgiving, you know. And, you know, I have friends that do run marathons barefoot, but, eh, you know, then I say, well, then what? What if you want to go to a restaurant and you got these funny-looking Frodo feet, you know? <laughs> you know, you can't put shoes on anymore. I don't know. That's, I don't live in that day and age. But, again, that's another conversation. So at the end of the day, the, the point I wanted to make was find a comfortable shoe, and the only rule in that is to make sure or at least be cognizant of the fact that the shoe's not impeding natural functionality of the foot. Okay, so, wow, we've got about nine minutes to cover all this other stuff. I'm, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it. Start. So I want to talk about um, the time trials again. So we talked about the time trial. You're, let's just let's play, let's play a game here. You're, you're preparing for a marathon, okay? Let's take you back to the guy that was overweight, and, you know, you looked down, and you got disgusted, and you said, oh, I'm going to get this worked out. So you focused on improving your running skills. You, you threw down the 80-20. Your, your work's progressively improving, meaning that you're putting more and more work in. We've done a time trial, and we've identified that you could step it up a little bit, and stepping it up means that you're going to start doing some lactate tolerance training. You're going to go over threshold, and I call it visiting the dark side. And this is a very precarious and dangerous place to visit, and you want to be very careful in the way you do it. It's like... Um, petting a, a crocodile's belly, <laughs> you know, if you, if you screw it up, you get bit, right? So you want, to, you want to make sure that you're very, very careful. And what I mean by careful is you don't want to just, you know, go hog wild and say, okay, well, you know, I was, finally, I get to run at 170 beats per minute again. You know, the, the intensity is too great. And if you just jump it up like that, you're going to find that your body doesn't find solutions to this ensuing production of lactic acid you're creating. You're not solving the problem. So you need to be very, very careful in the way you approach this lactate tolerance training. And in my book, I talk about this in great detail. And I, I really think that the magic in, in, in this speed over distance comes back to how efficiently people learn to pet that crocodile, so to speak. You know, and, and again, so How the, do you do that? well, the, the way you do it is, is you have to feather it. So if we've identified that 150 beats per minute, you start to go acidic. In other words, you're really starting to take on this lactic acid. You're not going to feel it right off because, you know, before you got smart and started training properly, you're probably running at 165 beats per minute anyway. But the, the, the point is, is that 165 beats per minute, you're, you're spilling energy very, very rapidly, but it's not so intense that it's causing you to shut down, except it will intuitively cause you to shorten your run because the intensity is too great. So you could get away with it for an hour, and if you, if you go, always kind of habitually go out and run for an hour, you'll never know there's a problem. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're not, you're not able to patch that leak if it starts to extend beyond that hour. So the way you do it is I tell people that lactate tolerance training is like getting a flu shot. It's a little bit of the virus, and then it gives your body a chance to adapt. So you could, let's say if I told you to run at 155 beats per minute, you'd say, oh, you know what, this feels better than trying to run at 140. I feel like I'm getting my mojo on. But you're not going to really sense that things are getting expensive because it's at low enough intensity where your body starts to intuitively solve the problem of this ensuing production of waste. And it does it through a thing called the lactate shuttle system. Your body will actually take the lactate production out of the working muscles, let's say your quadriceps, for example, 
and start shoving it back in your bloodstream and then moving it into other parts of the body that aren't working. So, for example, into your lats or something like that. And, and then what it does is it'll take that lactate later and reconstitute it as a usable fuel source. So the lactate in itself is not the enemy. It's the ensuing uh, hyperproduction of lactic acid that will start to shut you down. And uh, again, this is kind of a, a very lengthy topic, and I don't want to beat the drums too heavily here because I'm trying to do broad stroke stuff here. But at the end of the day, it's better to massage that lactic uh, tolerance rather than just to go hog wild and jump up into the heart rate and then try to take it on and sustain it because you won't, your body doesn't learn anything from that other than to put the brakes on. Again, lots of stuff, right? Yeah, that is, it is a lot. Did I lose so, you? Well, how, how can you do You lost me a little bit. I'm sorry. Okay, go. How, um, so how can you, how can you um, kind of gradually get into this uh, uh, lactic training? Well, what you want to do... Where it's, where it's effective. Yeah, so what you want to do is you want to wait until you've developed some good skill sets, you've developed a good aerobic base, and then you want to start tiptoeing into this darkness. And I tell people, for example, phase two is where you start to introduce this lactate tolerance training. And so let's just say that now we're at 10 hours a week. Instead of being at 80-20, we're going to start introducing some of that lactate tolerance. So we're going to add 20% lactate tolerance training to the, to the uh, equation. And so we're going to back off uh, the, the uh, aerobic training. So it's like 60% now, 20% motor skill, and 20% lactate tolerance. So what that would end up being is that on one, let's say, for example, if we're just going to do three workouts in a week, one of those workouts would be dedicated to either steady state over threshold running. So, again, about 155 beats per minute, you might stay there for an hour. Or you might do an undulating workout where you dip down and get a little air and then go up a little bit and just kind of undulate. And generally when they do that, I like to see about a two-to-one ratio. So in other words, if you're five minutes above your threshold, let's say 155, you come down to 140 for about five or uh, two and a half. So five minutes above, two and a half below, five minutes above, two and a half below, and you undulate like that for about an hour or so. And so that would like be like the tiptoeing into the darkness, so to speak. And then with time, you progressively start increasing the amount of time you stay over a threshold and decreasing the amount of time that you come below threshold, or you increase the total volume and just do a steady state workout. So instead of 155, maybe you try to hold 160 for an hour. And then that becomes, you know, this other element of training. Incidentally, all of this is very, very clearly pointed out in the book. And I'm starting to talk, I'm, I'm talking fast now because we're getting down to like a couple of minutes before the show's over. Well, it's it's uh, all very technical stuff you're talking about, but I've read, uh, I'm into about half of the book now, and it sure is simple when you're reading it. Well, and, it, and, it, and it, that was the intent. And incidentally, um, that's probably a good place to go now. It's like, rather than all this exercise physiology and trying to explain, you know, all these uh, dynamics of the way the body is functioning when you're doing what you're doing, I've just created these really simple icons. And in, in the back of the book, there's these templates, and it just you see the, the, the little bubbles, and the bubble just tells you very precisely. Yeah, very, very simple. Oh, that's what I'm doing today. After a while, you just, you know, you look at the icon, you know. You just look at, I'm going to do an hour of that today. Oh. And it's simple to follow. But, you know, for guys that are a little bit more interested in, uh, you know, fine-tuning their workouts for their, their own accord, uh, the book also provides for that, and it teaches you how to establish your own training program so that it works for you. In other words, you can customize the process so that it works for you. There's just some principles that you have to adhere to so that you don't, you know, just basically change the recipe, so to speak. I know it's a lot of stuff, and it's really, really difficult to drag people through this in a single hour. I think you've done a pretty good job so far. Thank you. There's probably going to be a... What do you think about... Huh? Go ahead. What, I was going to say, what do you think about, or what, what's your take on the importance of um, food and diet? Well, you know, I had that on my list here, um, and, and uh, nutrition is critical, obviously enough. It's very, very critical. Because if you don't feed your body properly and get the appropriate types of food into your system, you're not going to have the energy to do the work either. 
So you might find that towards the end of the week, you really start going flat because you just have not um, made sure that you had enough carbohydrate, for example, coming into your diet. Uh, or, you know, those that are, you know, getting into these vegan territories where they're not maybe getting enough appropriate, uh, uh, I say appropriate uh, quality protein into their lives, uh, which is really critical for repair. Um, and so, you know, again, that's a, that's a show onto itself. But, um, you know, in the book, again, I, I touch on very specifically what types of uh, uh, ratios of foods you should consume relative to the substrate. So how much carb versus protein, how much fat, what times of the day you should be consuming foods, and, you know, what you should eat before an event, for example. So, yes, absolutely. And then, you know, also we discuss in the book, you know, stretching at great length. We talk about all the injuries that are potentially uh, out there that can occur and how to contend with those. Uh, I've separated body work from stretching because I think body work is a category unto itself, given that, you know, this is about um, the things you do to keep you out of trouble as opposed to just, you know, attending a yoga class and saying, well, that's my stretching. Um, so body work meaning um, uh, strength training uh, in other areas other than just runners thinking just working on your legs? Body work to me is, the you know, getting out the foam roller, getting out a wooden dowel to, to uh, you know, address the fascia in the bottom of your feet. Um, All the know. torture that you've inflicted on me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a critical component, especially when you're, when you're exposing yourself to high volumes of work. You want to make sure that you're taking care of this connective tissue. There are some things that you can do that maybe hyperextend joints, which might not be beneficial to you. And there are some things that you're doing that are beneficial to you. But body work to me is very precise and focused attention to parts of the body that need that attention. If this is starting to sound like I want people to be directed to my book, it's because I want people to be directed to my book. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for giving me a copy of the book. I'm fascinated by it so far. I'm, like I said, I'm about almost halfway into it. But um, I need to get, uh, I would like to get a couple more copies to give to my family and friends. Well, <laughs> if that's I, possible. I, so is there is there someplace I can uh, go or direct them to at least? Well, in your in your regard, you'll just get them from me. But uh, in, <laughs> okay. those are the people that are, are not going to have a chance to meet me. Uh, or maybe don't want to meet me, <laughs> they can find it online. They can go to Amazon.com and find. You got, want to search the all-new My Best Race, and uh, or they can go to my all website. New my Best Race. Right, My Best Race. Uh, generally on Amazon, if you plug in My Best Race, you should be able to find it. But they can also visit my website, which is Diaz Human Performance, D-I-A-Z, humanperformance.com. And I have the books there in a couple of versions. I have it in a PDF version if they just want to download and save a few bucks. But uh, anyway, Jimmy, you know what? You did an amazing job. I, I, told you, uh, I told you early on that I thought you were akin to Barbara Walters in your ability to interview. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> thank you. I think you're doing a great job, and uh, thanks for inviting me on to the show. And let's, you know what, and those of you out there that have the where to for to have the most amazing-looking pool in the world, incidentally. I mean, this guy, Jimmy, I'm going to pat him on the back a little bit. What amazing work. Tell him how to get to your website. I want him just to see some of the work you've done. Uh, the website, well, uh, it's, the website is rocksolidtile.com. Uh, we do need to update the website a bit, um, but you can also find us on Facebook, and that would be facebook.com slash jreadrst. That would be Rock Solid Tile. So, yeah, check it out. Come over and like the page on uh, Facebook and check out our website. Excellent. Hey, speaking of websites, what else is on yours? Oh my is God! Just the place is just just an outlet for your book, or what? No, dude. Which which you know? I have four websites, uh, but the the DS Human Performance uh, has a page for gait evaluation. It's got a a page for VO2 testing. It's got a page for bike fitting. It's got a page for nutrition. It's got a page for functional fit. And there's a lot of things on that site. I mean, I don't even recall all the things that are on that site. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> awesome. It's like it's like my closet. You know, there's just so many things in there that I, I don't even know. Some of it's valuable. Some of it maybe not. But anyway, uh, we're going to shut it down, Jimmy. And, uh, All right, again, All right I, Richard. Well, I, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate having you on. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. 
Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.